Kid, you crushed it. Next week, we have Caleb Worsler singing a special, so. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, speaking of awful advice, have you ever received just the absolute most horrendous advice from somebody? Like, really bad advice, and it was something that they said was a sure thing. I don't know about you guys, but I found some just last night, actually, and I figured I would share something it goes along the lines of what this guy had to, had to say. This is my amazing wife, and we have been married almost 16 and a half years, and I wanted to give you three pieces of advice for how to uh, diffuse any argument with your wife. So the first one... Chocolate! The first one is to say, I told you so. She's going to realize that you did tell her, and she's going to calm down. The next one is you're going to say calm down. She's going to realize that she's freaking out and that she should calm down. And then the, th the third one is to say it's no big deal. She'll have this epiphany, she'll realize it's no big deal, and everything will be A-OK. -okay. So this is how my wife and I, this is, <laughs> this, is, this is my beautiful wife and I giving you the uh, awesome TikTok marriage advice. Also, bonus, don't take marriage advice from TikTok. That's probably the biggest one. With the exception of that last sentence, uh, that was pretty awful advice, would you not agree? You ever get advice like that or worse? The next time someone tries to tell you something like that, you have just one very simple response to them when they say something. You sure about that? You sure about that? You sure about that? But see, it doesn't just stop with awful advice. You ever taken a look at just some of the atrocious inventions that have been made over the years? I, I found one going back to the 1920s. Electrified water. Some genius thought it'd be a great idea to eradicate headaches. Let's electrify some water. And it looks like it's working for her, does it not? It even says it right there, a sure cure for headaches. They stopped doing that for reasons unknown. <laughs> but that was back in the 1920s. And you think, no, we've gotten better. Surely we've improved by now. Well, then I found something going back to 2005. Cheeto-flavored lip balm. <laughs> Wives, picture you're going on a date night. Give your hubby a kiss. That could be dangerous business, especially if he hasn't eaten dinner yet. <laughs> wind up li liable to wind up with half your face missing. <laughs> Thankfully, they removed it from the market, but not without inspiring some other genius to come up with this. You know, in case you get a hankering, <laughs> get a sweet tooth for that good old Crayola crayons that you used to eat when you were a preschooler. You can buy this at Walmart right now. $6.99. Available within two hours of pickup within the store from this moment. Why is it that no one in some boardroom meeting somewhere didn't stand up and say, You sure about that? You sure about that? You sure about that? doesn't just stop with horrible products of invention. What about when a so-called trustworthy person shows up on TV? Says things like, it can't possibly get any worse. Or, my personal favorite, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. You sure about that? You sure about that? You sure about that? And even amongst us, within the church, the Holy Spirit is constantly prodding us and working us over, letting us know not to fall for an unsure thing. I mean, even just with our teenagers, coming back from an awesome summer, going into the fall, going into the school year, you're being pressured with friendships that may or may not be the best kind. Or maybe that guy starts looking at you, or that girl that starts looking at you, and your red flags are going off and you're wanting to ignore it because you think it's the sure thing. 
It's almost like when you get to that moment, you hear your camp speaker in the back of your head just warning you. Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? Are you so sure? Oh, really? Oh, really? You're so sure? Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? I asked Scott to deliver one line and he gives me 16 seconds of gold. (laughs) But adults, you're not immune to this either. Whether we're about to do something we shouldn't do or about to think or say something we shouldn't do, the Holy Spirit will do anything to get your attention, whether speaking in English or in some cases Spanish. ¿Estás seguro de esto? Don't you love our missionaries? If you're a guest, that is not what Brian actually looks like. (laughs) On your outline, the introduction. In case you couldn't already tell from that, these days you can't put much stock into anything called a sure thing. Even if that sure thing comes in the form of sound advice, a reliable product, or a trustworthy person, there's no guarantee that these things will be consistent. All these things come from fallible means. We often find ourselves wondering if anything is certain anymore. Thankfully, we can in fact turn to something that is infallible to find the sure things in life. Let's go ahead and pray one last time. Father, I want to thank you so much for what you've laid upon all of our hearts to talk about this morning ranging from the songs that were chosen for worship to even the song you laid on AJ's heart, the sure foundation, the firm foundation, things that are certain, things that are infallible, things that are without a shadow of a doubt, things that are firm. And in this day and age, the, the longer we go about on this, in this planet and in this life, it just seems that there's less and less sure things to count on. So Lord, prove us wrong today. We open up your book. May you speak to us. Get me out of the way. And let us just hear what your book has to say. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So speaking of sure thing number one, this infallible thing that we can in fact turn to, it's the preserved word of God. That's sure thing number one. Because who cares what I have to say about this? I did a message last year talking about the infallible Word of God and how God has set some certain things in order that prove that this book was not written by man. God used man in order to write it, but God was the author thereof. There are just things and certain anomalies that can't be explained with human logic and reasoning. You can think about it very, very simply with UFO. No, not the ones you're looking about online right now and hearing about from your government. But U stands for the unity of the Scripture. This book was written by over 40 different authors on three different continents and three different languages over a span of 1,400 years. doesn't contradict once. You can't find it. You can't prove it. If so, you would have news articles written constantly everywhere stating that the Bible has been proven wrong. And yet, it's still the number one bestseller to this day. Not only is the unity there, but the fulfilled prophecy is there. We're going to look at one of them in a little bit. And then there's an overflow of scientific accuracy. See, science in the world is always catching up to the accuracy of the Bible. It is sure, and the Bible testifies of itself as sure. It says in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord, you find the law of the Lord in the word of the Lord, is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is what? Making wise the simple. He says later on, two other places in Psalms, thy testimonies are sure. A testimony is both the written word and the spoken word. It's a testimony, like in a court of law. All his commandments are sure. Even Peter in the New Testament, he would say, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. The context of this, he's talking about when he's on a mountain with James and John, and he not only sees something incredible that'll blow your mind in Matthew 17, But he also hears the audible voice of God. So when he says, I have a more sure word, he's saying more sure than the audible voice of God himself saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. In that context, he's saying, hey, we have a more sure word. What is it? Verse 20. 
No prophecy of the what? Scripture is of any private interpretation. That's why I've said already, and I'll probably say it again, don't take anything I have to say. Let's see what this book has to say. Because I'm just a flawed man. I am fallible. I am not firm. Mankind and churches will let you down, but this book never will. So with that in mind, let's dig in and see. See, the Bible is a self-defining book. God has built certain keys and certain rules or guidelines, if you will, to help us to understand and to know Him. And one of those keys and, and, and guidelines He's put in there is the idea of word studies. Take a word like sure and just trace it all throughout the Bible. And specifically, one of the first places you want to look at is the first time it ever shows up. So turn over with me to Genesis chapter 23. This is a chapter where the very first mention of the word shore shows up, but it's not the first mention of any form of the word of shore. We'll get to that in just a second. Genesis chapter 23, look with me in verse 17. In the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field that were in all the borders round about were made sure. Deep and inspirational, I know. You go on further in verse 20. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto who? Yeah, now you find the reason why. For possession of a burying place by the sons of Heth. You know what the context of chapter 23 is? I'll be honest. When I first came across this a couple weeks ago, I was completely mind blown. Because I'm like, wait a second. I thought I knew chapter 23. Chapter 23 is one of those chapters where it could be very easily passed over. Goodies in chapter 22, goodies in chapter 24. Chapter 23 is just kind of a flyover chapter. But it's very significant. You know what chapter 23 is all about? Abraham is burying his wife, Sarah. He had to get a burying place. He had to get a fixed, firm, certain spot for him to lay her body there. As you would trace this place out, this is Hebron. This is where all of the patriarchs would be buried and their wives later on. It's sure. The first two mentions of it have to do with a fixed property for burial. Now, if you flip back a couple chapters to chapter 2, you'll find the very first mention of any form of the word, sure. If at any point you lose track of what the word sure is, I do have the definition on your outline for you there. It means certain, infallible, undoubtedly, or like AJ's song, firm. It's concrete. Here in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 2, and the Lord God set, commanded the man, Adam, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt what? Surely die. It is firm, it is certain, without a shadow of a doubt, Adam. You partake of that fruit, you're gone. You're done. Then you come to chapter 3 of Genesis. And right away in verse 1, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it. Wait a second, I don't remember that being in the Bible. Because see, in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, those are the only two verses in your entire Bible at this point. That wasn't in there about touching it. She's adding. Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye, what? Wait a minute, what happened to the Shirley? What happened to it? I mean, especially when you look at a definition like that, don't you think that is a word you don't want to leave out of your memory verse? It's certain. It's concrete. 
Yeah, but the point I want to draw your attention to is that even though Eve forgot her Bible, Satan did not. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. See, the serpent is really good at changing God's Word. He's really good at making it into a lie. But have you thought about it this way? What Satan is basically doing here by saying, ye shall not surely die, is that he's causing doubt in Eve as far as whether or not she's able to trust this book or not. He's basically saying, God's word's not certain. God's word's not infallible. You should doubt God's word. And we are seeing this nowhere prevalent than, any more so today than we are in our quote-unquote Christian college campuses. Just this week, talk to anyone who goes to Walsh University, Malone College, or Mount Union, all three colleges that claim to be Christian schools. And they have professors up there that are teaching them just that exact same thing. See, this isn't certain. You can't trust this. You, you have to doubt it. You have to question it. It was written by man, after all. And think about all of the other religious stories that line up with this book. Are they all wrong, too? See, that's mistake number one. We can't look at this like it's another religious book. This is a history book. And if it's a history book, that means something. If its history has been proven true about the past, then that means that its history of the future is also true. But see, because it has God's name sprinkled all throughout it, people think it's a religious book. Mm -mm. If it's a history book, if it's a book of history and its history's been proven true, you have to do something with what it says. And that's why college campuses and even some churches, unfortunately, are doing everything they can to try to eradicate this and just relegate it as another religious book. So that way, it's your opinion. Well, that's just what you believe. Therefore, if that's what you believe and there's all these other kinds of different beliefs out there, I can just pass off the conviction that I feel about having to give an account for my sin one day and just relegate this as though it's another religious book. Satan's been doing it since the garden. He's still doing it today. So here, in chapter 2 and 3, we see a connotation of the word surely with death. In chapter 23, the word surely is associated with death. That brings us a sure thing, number two. It's the ominous reality that death comes to us all because of sin. You see, the rest of the story in Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve partook of that fruit. And yeah, their bodies didn't die physically right away. They lived to the ripe old age of 900 and some years old. And their souls didn't die that day because they had personalities. They had a, a, or their mind, their emotions, their, their will. No, you see what died, what surely died that day when they disobeyed? It was the spiritual connection. See, God is a three-part being, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And He made mankind as a three-part being, a body, a soul, and a spirit. The spiritual connection with God the Father died that day. And they lost the image of God. And it's interesting because the other first mention of the word book in your Bible just so happens to show up in Genesis chapter, anyone know? Five. You know what Genesis chapter five is known as? The great funeral chapter of the Bible. You see everyone, as Adam and Eve start reproducing sons and daughters in their image, Everyone starts to die, 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 die. He didn't die, die. That's a story for another day. Death is certain, unfortunately. It's a sure thing. Not only that, I did some digging. You know that the words sure and surely show up 325 times in 319 verses of your Bible? And out of all of those references, 160 times does it have to do with death. That means that 49% of all references to the word sure in your Bible have to do with death. You know what God is trying to tell us through that as you study the Bible, compare Scripture with Scripture, let the Bible interpret itself? It is certain. 
without a shadow of a doubt. Unfailing, firm. Death comes to us all. We all have our own fixed burial plot in a grave, just like Sarah had. Well, I guess we can just end the message there on that gloomy note. No, because there's still 51% of all the other references that are left. And thankfully, that 51% that's left is good news. So let's spend the rest of the time looking at that. Have you become distracted, though, of sure thing number two? See, life can get so busy that we can become very, very transfixed on the here and now that we don't think about eternity. We don't think about what's going to happen the day that we take our last breath on this planet. So maybe you're in here and this is your first time here, or maybe you've been coming to this church your whole entire life. And for this little space of grace that you've dusted off, you're sitting here and you're thinking, what is going to happen to me when I take my last breath here on this earth? I'd say today is a good day to come to church then. So let's get to the good news. God gives us the good news and he decides to do something about it in Isaiah chapter 28. Go ahead and turn over there. Isaiah is towards the middle of your Bible. And as a little background, Isaiah, the book, was written about 714 years B.C. Or for those of you who are on college campuses, boy, college campuses are getting no mercy from me today. They have what's called B.C.E. Anybody know what that stands for? Before Common Era. And they would say today we live in 2023 CE, common era. You know what's funny, though, is the deciding factor between BCE and CE is the exact same deciding factor before BC and AD. <laughs> Figure that one out. I don't know. It's the birth of Christ. And see, Isaiah 28 we see that all throughout the Old Testament, you know, mankind tried to do something about this death thing. And he thought that he could be good enough. He thought he could make his way, his own way to heaven by being good enough. And in verse 14 of Isaiah 28, Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men. It's a sure word. Better hear it. It's certain. It's firm. The rule, or that rule, this people, which is in Jerusalem, because ye have said... We have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, when death and judgment comes, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Mankind has told himself lies ever since going back to the garden to try to wish away this death thing, to try to wish away this certainty that death comes to us all. They try to think, if I can be good enough, then I'll, I'll get into heaven. If I can just try harder, then I can get into heaven. And that's why I love, and please don't miss this, and triple underline it, if you will, I love how verse 16 starts off with the word, therefore. In light of the lies that we tell ourselves, God decides, I'll do something about it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, it's concrete, no pun intended. But it's not just a stone, it's a tried stone. It's been tested, it's been proven, it's withstood the test of time. But it's not just a tried stone, it's a precious cornerstone. It's valuable, it's invaluable. You can't put a cost on this stone. And it's a cornerstone. It's the stone from which all of the other building blocks of the foundation are laid right from this one cornerstone. But it's not just a precious cornerstone. It's a what? Sure foundation. Just like the song. It's firm. It's certain. You can count on it. And not only that, look how he ends it. He that believeth shall not make haste you got to have some faith involved with this stone. Turn over to chapter 53 a few pages to your right. I've heard it said of this chapter 
that certain synagogues will have a ribbon in here where they are not allowed to read this chapter that you and I are about to read. We're in for a ride, I'd say. Verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm, the arm of the Lord revealed? You see, as you compare Scripture with Scripture, we find that, man, this sure stone, this precious stone, this tried stone, it's now revealed to be an arm of the Lord. And in Isaiah 51, verse 5, he says, My righteousness, this is God speaking, is near. My salvation is gone forth, and mine arms shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arm shall they what? So this arm is likened to the sure foundation of Isaiah 28. Back in verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, this stone, this arm of the Lord. And when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. It's almost as though this stone, this sure foundation, this arm of the Lord came unto his own and his own received him not. We hid or sorry, verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It's almost as though this rock, this sure foundation, this arm of the Lord, that at the end, everyone would forsake him and that none would be by his side. Oh, please say the first word of verse 4 with me. Surely he hath borne or held our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes, we are healed. Now, please don't misunderstand this passage. He's not talking about a physical ailment and healing thereof. He's not even talking about emotional and mental security or healing. And he is surely not talking about healing from any kind of poverty in a prosperity healment. No, no, no. See, in 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24, it says, Who his own self, the sure foundation, the arm of the Lord... Bear our what? In his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. My friends, what it is that we had in need of healing was the disease and the ailment of sin that leads to our sure, certain death. That's what he healed us from. Verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. You see, you might be thinking to yourself, why would I have to pay the punishment of Adam and Eve's sin and their disobedience? Because of this verse. Look what you and I have all done. We have turned everyone to his own way. And in spite of that, even though we've all chosen our own way, anybody hear speed on their way to church? Where's Officer Andy? <laughs> I can't believe we actually had some people raise their hands. <laughs> Being honest, you realize that if you got caught and you got a speeding ticket, you could say to that officer until you're blue in the face, well, it's not like I killed anybody. And it's true, but you still broke the law. You still broke the law. You violated the law. And see, each and every single one of us, it's the exact same thing. You tell one lie, the Bible says in James chapter 2, it doesn't matter if you've not killed anybody or if you've not stolen anything, so you think. The Bible says if you offend in just one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. You've broken the law. We've each done that. We've all gone our own way. And in spite of that, back in verse 6, when we were yet sinners... The Lord hath laid on him the arm of the Lord, the sure foundation, the iniquity 
of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he openeth not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. It's almost as though when he was accused of the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. 750 years after Isaiah 53 was written. Back in verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? He was thrown in prison. He was judged. And then after that, he was cut off out of the land of the living. This arm of the Lord, this sure foundation, lost his life. Why? For the transgression of my people was he stricken. See, Jesus Christ, whoops, spoiler alert, just gave it away. He wasn't a martyr. He wasn't killed just to start some new movement. He knew exactly what he was doing when he took that cup of suffering on himself. He was paying the price of the sins of the entire planet. That includes mine, that includes yours. See, we need a sin bearer because death comes to us all and there's nothing we can do about it. Not just physical death, but eternal death, forever separated from God in a place that he never intended any of us to go to in Matthew 25, verse 41. A place called hell. That was a place for Satan and his angels, according to that verse. But he loves us. That's why he took the hit for us Verse 9, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Kind of like in Matthew 27, 57, when the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. And as you look at the rest of that passage, you'll find that rich man took the body of the sure foundation of the arm of the Lord, and he buried him in his own burial plot. Fulfillment, fulfillment of a 750-year-old prophecy at that point. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. <laughs> Yet, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You see, it pleased the Lord to bruise his only begotten son because he knew that that was the only acceptable offering. Just like all the way back in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain brings forth an offering of the works of his own hands, his own good deeds, God refused that offering. But when it came to the offering of Abel, which brought a bloody sacrifice, that was a sweet-smelling savor to God's nostrils. You see, you need an offering in order to have your sins covered. There is a wage to be paid for sin and death. We can pay for it, or we can have a substitute pay for it. And see, in this case, the substitute was a satisfactory payment to God the Father. It's a word propitiation that is used, meaning that it satisfied the Father's requirements for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And not only that, Hebrews chapter 12 says that it was the joy of, that was set before Jesus that helped him to endure, to despise the shame of the cross and to go through with his offering to finish the deed so that you and I wouldn't have to because he cares for us. Just like we sang these songs today. Tommy, I enjoyed our meeting this week when we got together and we shared notes about what my message was and what songs you're going to choose. That didn't happen, by the way. God's in charge here. Verse 11, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. See, it was on the cross that Jesus died and the wrath of God was satisfied. 
Bible says he's angry at the wicked every day. But when Jesus Christ took the hit, that satisfied the requirement, satisfied his wrath. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he had poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Almost like in Matthew 20, or Mark 15, with him they crucified two what? Otherwise known as transgressors. The one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Just like we read. My friend Larry, where you reckon you get a book like that? This can't be a religious book. This is a book of history. Mankind isn't that smart. Do I need to take you back to the beginning slides again? Mankind's not that smart to orchestrate something this complex. If that's the case, you need to do something with what you're hearing today. What are you going to do with what you're hearing? And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You know what sure thing number three is? Jesus Christ bore our sin and death on the cross. This is where I was supposed to reveal to you, in case it wasn't already clear, that he is the chief cornerstone that we saw in Isaiah 28. That's what Ephesians 2.20 says. Like AJ saying, he is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. He's the one that did all of that for you and I before we were even born because of his great love that he has for us. You know, the Bible says the wages of sin are death. It's a sure thing that we all have wages that we got to pay. You know, I was discipling with uh, Sam Costa last or two weeks ago, and we were talking about how there's no way that any good works can possibly pay the price of my sin. I can't work hard enough, do enough good things, come to church enough in order to satisfy the, the requirement to pay the price for my sin. And it's funny because Sam said something I never thought about it this way before. He's like, isn't it funny that we work in order to earn wages? That's why it's ingrained in everyone's mentality. The people that you go to school with, the people that you go to work with. It's ingrained in our mentality that I need to do something. I need to work so that when I die and I go up to heaven, I can lay my work and my work is somehow going to transfer over to wages that I can then pay my way to get into heaven. It's ingrained into us because of that. It's a great point, Sam. But see, if salvation could be attained by our good works and our righteousness, question for you, why did Jesus Christ have to die? It's foolish of him to do that if salvation could be up to us. The Bible says in Galatians 2.21 that if that's the case, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. You got to consider that. You got to consider maybe what I grew up believing about the Bible, Christianity, church, maybe it's wrong. Maybe the Word of God actually is right on this. So, what happens next? Just listen while I read to you Matthew 27 64 to 66. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure. This is the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were part and parcel responsible for killing Christ. And they're having a conspiracy with the other half that was responsible for killing Christ, Rome. And they want the, the, the tomb, the sepulcher, to be made sure, certain, sealed, firm. Lest his disciples come and they, they steal his body and say, look, he's risen from the dead. And then Pilate on the Roman side, verse 65, said, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Three times, sure, sure, sure. And I can just hear God the Father in heaven going, You sure about that? You know what you find? Sure thing number four. The sure grave surely couldn't hold him because he didn't stay dead. 
See, therefore, it can't hurt you and I if we believe his report and put our trust in him because he conquered the grave. He paid for our sin debt on the cross and his resurrection guarantees all who put their faith and trust in him will have eternal life because he lives. I can see tomorrow. Man, sure proof, sure things. Acts 1.3 says, To whom also he, Jesus, showed himself alive after his passion, after his death, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days. You would think that if your enemies just killed you, you would not want to be hanging around for 40 days afterwards. But he did. Again, we just kind of passed over that verse when we're reading it. That's incredible when you think about it. Not only that, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, after that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. You know how many witnesses are needed in, by and large, most states of the United States of America in order for something to be, you know, a witness in a courtroom hearing or you're being interviewed by the police? You know how many witnesses are needed in order for it to be concrete? Two. It's funny, I remember hearing that somewhere too. I think they got it from the Bible when it says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. 500 brethren at once. You think it's any wonder why Rome had to riot afterwards and burn Jerusalem down to the ground? You think it's any wonder why in the book of Acts and recorded by secular historians that you see all of Jerusalem and Judea and the Jewish religion giving up their own people because they started following Christ? Why would they go through all that trouble over a lie? If these things did not happen, why go through all the trouble of burning Jerusalem down to the ground in 70 AD like the Roman Emperor Titus did and blaming it on the Christians? Now see, they knew something was going on. A little side note, you consider our first mention of the word sure in Genesis 23. Talked about chapter 22 being a doozy and chapter 24 being a doozy. What happens in chapter 22? The father offers up his only begotten son, Isaac, Abraham to Isaac, offers him up, and the son has two people on either side of him as he's carrying up the sacrifice, God, of course, testing Abraham's faith. And what happened? God provided himself a lamb, a substitute lamb for Isaac. You know what happens in Genesis 24? The son is searching for a bride. Here you have Genesis 22. You want to summarize 22 in one word? It's all about death. Summarize chapter 23 with Sarah's burial plot. It's all about burial. Chapter 24, you want to summarize in one word? It's all about newness of life. Again, anyone here that smart? They can order the Bible and make sure somehow that 3,000 years in the future, these events were going to happen exactly the way they did? Where do you reckon you get a book like this? Sure thing number five. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone, not trusting in our own righteousness. John chapter 6, 69, Peter said, We believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. And we don't have time to turn there right now, so just listen to Romans chapter 3. Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But being justified, that word means just if I'd never sinned. When you by faith trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ as payment alone for your sins, the Bible says that God looks down upon you and it's just if I'd never sinned. That can happen to you today if you've never entered into a personal relationship with him. being justified freely by His grace, Jesus dying before you were even born for you, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, satisfactory, the satisfactory payment through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins. Not my own, not your own. 
I say at this time, he repeats it in verse 26, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Do you have a sin bearer this morning? Have you ever came into that point of decision in your life where you trusted Christ alone and his shed blood on the cross as payment alone for your sins? Not your own works, not your church attendance, not your baptism, not your communion, not anything else, not anything else that some guy behind a pulpit has ever said to you, this book and what his son has done. Have you come to that point? You can today. It'll be a sure thing. Not only that, sure thing number six. Oh, whoops. Sorry, before sure thing number six. Some verses on sure, sure thing number five. You know what eternal life gives us? It gives us hope. Maybe you came in your day and you're just hopeless right now. Titus 3, 7 says that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this hope that you have when you come into a relationship with Christ, it is a hope that is as an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast. You know why? What happens when you drop an anchor into the ocean? What is it supposed to link with? What's it supposed to hit? A firm foundation so that you don't drift through the storms of life. Man, you know what that means? That means he'll never take it away from us. Our hope is sure in Christ. No matter what you do, nothing will separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing. And not only that, not only does he give us eternal life, forgiveness of sins, we are promised to pass from death, the sure thing number two, and into life, but not only that, sure thing number six says that through a relationship with Christ, we have a certain purpose that involves reaching others for him. You see, salvation's not the end of the story. So often we just end with the gospel and we forget about anything and everything else. You have a sure purpose in life that God created you for that only you can accomplish. So what is it? You need to figure it out yourself. John 17, 8. Jesus is done discipling his disciples. He says, I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. He's praying to God the Father right now. And he says the words that God the Father gave him, he has instilled it into his disciples, and now he's commissioning them to go and do the same. It's huge. They have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. We teach in verse 8 of John chapter 17 that this is about one-on-one -on -one discipleship. You see, God doesn't want you only to know what has happened for your eternity future. He wants you to know that you have a certain purpose that you can fulfill that has to do with his ginormous mission to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you know what your purpose is? Do you know what your mission is? Do you know what 2 Peter 1.10 says is your calling? You need to make those things sure. That's why we have one-on-one -on -one discipleship in this class, to not only teach you the Bible, but to help you to see what is it that God put me here on this planet to do that only I can do. It comes through a relationship with Christ. And once you're sure of it, you've got to do something with it. You have to. You know, 1 Corinthians 8.3, if you want to take notes, it says that if any man love God, the same is known of him. In the workplace, Christian. In the schools, Christian. Do people know, not that you go to church, not that there's something different about you, do they know that you love God? You know what I find fascinating? They will know if you know God or if you love God, but they'll also know if you say you love God and you ain't acting like it. Matthew 26, 73, 
says, And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them. You know what's going on here? It's at the trial of Christ. And Peter's trying to hide his association and relationship with Christ from the rest of the public. Is that you? Christian, are you just a one day a week believer? And you're hiding your faith from the rest of the known world? The rest of the known world that needs to know and see the Savior in you? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that you and I are living epistles. You realize that your life may be the only Bible that somebody reads? What are they reading? Because if they see that you say that you go to church, that you love the Lord, well, the way that verse ends is, for thy speech bereath thee. It's evident. It's clear that you are who you are. Make your calling and election sure, Christian. Find out what that purpose is and do it. On your outline there for your conclusion. Everyone's getting excited because it's only been 45 minutes for Corey. <laughs> Conclusions can be deceptive. Just read Philippians chapter 3. He says in conclusion, homeboy's got another two chapters left. <laughs> conclusion. As we've seen through the infallible Word of God, these sure things comprise the firm foundation of our faith. The question for us all is, what are we going to do with what we've heard? What are you going to do with what you heard today? Maybe this is the first time that you've ever heard what Jesus Christ actually did for you. Maybe you're well-versed in the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done for you, and you've received it, and your life has been transformed, but you're kind of just wandering aimlessly looking for, what am I supposed to do? What's my calling? What's my purpose? Whatever it is the Lord has laid on your heart, it would be wise for us to keep in mind sure thing number seven. Turn over one last place to the book of Revelation. We started in the beginning. We're going to end in the end. Revelation 22. Look at verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Behold, I come quickly. Remember, he ascended alive after his resurrection. He's coming back. And he says, I'm coming back quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. In other words, you know what it is that God is asking you to do with what you've heard today and you do something with it? You'll be blessed. And my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. A Christian, this is for you. Because in Revelation 19.8, it says that we, the church, all who have entered into a personal relationship with Christ, we're called Jesus' bride. Just like Isaac, the only son, was looking for a bride in Genesis 24. We're called that bride. And in Revelation 19.8, it says that the bride is clothed with the righteousness of the saints. You see, we become Jesus' bride by trusting in His righteousness, not our own. But after salvation, we do have works of righteousness we do, not to keep our salvation, no, but just because He is worthy of the glory, of the honor, and the wisdom, and the power that He so richly deserves. And so we work and we labor to tell everyone about Christ. And he says that he's going to reward us with crowns and with a robe. And in Revelation 19.8, he says, the bride is clothed with the righteousness of saints. You know, I see that we have about, I don't know what, half of the Varsity Jackson boys baseball team here. 
I came from a baseball family. My brother was a three-year starter on the varsity team for Perry. My dad, my grandfather, baseball, baseball giants. And I thought that I got the gene. I didn't get the gene, Dad. But you know the thing I love about the sport? Every other sport, you wear jerseys. You know what I love about baseball? You wear a uniform. You're classy. And there's just nothing like getting into a game, jersey tucked in, no, excuse me, uniform, tucked in, getting it dirty, getting it torn up from sliding into second and third, getting the dirt in your teeth, maybe getting a little bloody. There's just nothing. Finishing a game out, knowing that you exhausted every bit of energy and left it all in the diamond. My dad was my coach, and he was a great coach. This was during the 90s when propitiation, not propitiation, participation trophies were huge. Didn't matter if my team went 2-13, and 13, we'd get a participation trophy at the end of the season. On the drive home, my dad was always good to remind me, you know we didn't earn that, right? <laughs> but he was also a great coach for another reason. He wasn't on there just to make sure that I played. Because he didn't hesitate to yank me out if my attitude wasn't in the game. I remember times specifically, I think I was on the mound and I was ticked off at my teammates. AJ, like I'm sure you probably do, you wanna just go ahead and air any grievances out with them right now? <laughs> ticked off at my teammates about something, and it was bottom of the first inning, and I'm just griping at my dad, telling him this, this, and that, and he's trying to get me to see, hey, it's only the first inning, lighten up, and we're a team. Pitcher's not everything. You need all the other eight guys out there with you. And I remember I just wasn't having it. Just kept ripping back and forth, spouting off of my mouth. Until finally, he had enough. He looked over at the main coach and he said, bench him. His heart's not in it today. You know what absolutely stinks? Wearing those polyester uniforms in a smoldering, hot, sunny day, and you're not getting any use out of it. You see your teammates getting all dirtied up, putting their heart and soul into the field, and I'm keeping the bench warm. You get done with the game, and it didn't matter whether you won or lost or not. You look at your teammates and see all the work they put in, and you feel like a chump. And not only that, I would have all of this energy left in me to give, but the only problem is the game's over. There's no more energy. There's no more game left to play. It's done. When we get to heaven, are you going to have a whole bunch of energy left in you because you weren't exhausting yourself here for the kingdom of God's sake? Are you going to feel like you're ready to get some skin into the game? But by then, it's not going to matter because whether win or lose, game's over. You know the one thing you can't do in heaven? You can't share your faith with a lost person because there's only saved people in heaven. The game's done. I don't want to get to the finish line and have all this energy left in me knowing that I could have given my Lord and Savior my everything and yet I was just a pew sitter or a pew warmer. It could be very, very comfortable to do that, even still to this day. Do you want your reward when you see him to be? You could have given so much more, but you didn't. Jump down to verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Sure thing number seven is the Lord is coming back. Are you ready for that? 
Do you have a sin bearer who's taken away all of your sin and shame? Have you trusted in Christ alone as your Lord and personal Savior? Christian, for those of you who have, are you giving God the glory, the honor, and the power that he so richly deserves in your life? Time is short. What are you doing with the forgiveness of sins and the eternal life and the hope and the sure hope and the steadfast hope of the firm foundation of the rock on which you stand? What are you doing with it? What are we doing with it? Are we going to be ashamed when he comes back? We need to give unto the Lord the glory due his name. We need to give unto the Lord that for which he is owed. Because he paid such a high cost for you. And yet some will dismiss. There might be even some of you out here right now that are just thinking, you know what? take my chances. I'm still holding on to my religion. I'm still holding on to the church attendance that I attend. I'm still holding on to trusting in, I was raised by good godly parents. I'm still trusting in the fact that uh, I'm good enough. I'm still trusting in the fact that I, I take communion or get baptized or, or do any other kind of good religious deed. And when I get to heaven, I'll have all of my good works up there and we'll see if they outweigh my bad. And if that's you, I have only one question for you. Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? Will you bow your heads?